Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com disclosures slash high-yield-account. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. We turn our attention to the markets this week. U.S. CPI endeavors reinforcing concerns about inflation. And the financial stories that shape our world. A really different reaction to markets. More indications of just how hot the U.S. economy really is. Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary. Catherine Keating, CEO of BNY Mellon. Sam Zell, chairman and founder of Equity Group Investment. Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. A week of hope about inflation and interest rates, about China's relations with the United States, about Britain getting serious about its budget, and, of course, former President Trump's hope that he can do it all again. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This week, special contributor Larry Summers on what came out of the G20 meetings in Bali. And former Fed Vice Chair Rich Clarida on the liquidity problem in the Treasuries market and what can be done about it. It was a week of hoping, hoping that things just might start to move in a better direction in U.S.-China relations after President Biden's meeting in Bali with President Xi. I absolutely believe there need not be a new Cold War. I do not think there's any imminent attempt on the part of China to invade Taiwan. And I uh, made it clear that our policy in Taiwan has not changed at all. Hoping that inflation may just be easing a bit in the United States, with Fed Vice Chair Leo Brainerd telling Bloomberg we might see a bit of moderation in rate hikes. I think it will probably um, be appropriate to move to a slower pace of increases. But I think what's really important to emphasize, we've done a lot. But we have additional work to do both on raising rates and sustaining restraint to bring inflation down. Hoping that the new British government has gotten the message as it put forth a new budget designed to reassure the markets. So today we deliver a plan to tackle the cost of living crisis and rebuild our economy. Yeah. 
priorities are stability, growth and public services. And then, of course, there's that special kind of hope that former President Trump brings to everything he does, deciding that despite what happened in the midterms to his hand-picked candidates, this was the right time to announce he's running again for president. In order to make America great and glorious again, I am tonight announcing my candidacy for president of the United States. Even as prominent investor and Republican supporter Ken Griffin of Citadel couldn't find much to hope for in Mr. Trump's candidacy. He lost in 2020. We lost Georgia because of his behavior in the Senate race in 2020. That's a second loss. And then this year, the Republicans lost the Senate because the Trump-backed candidates in the Senate races were rejected by American voters. That's a three-time loser. And I'd like to think that the Republican Party is ready to move on from somebody who's been, for this party, a three-time loser. Well, whatever we were all hoping for this week, we didn't really get that much out of the markets, which traded without real conviction, with the S&P 500 off just 7 tenths of a percent for the week, and the Nasdaq down 1.57%, and the yield on the 10-year up about seven basis points, ending the week at 3.82. To help us sort it all out, we welcome now Afsani Beshla, CEO of Rock Creek, and Bob Michael. He's Chief Investment Officer and Head of the Global Fixed Income Unit at J.P. Morgan Asset Management. So welcome, both of you. Great to have you back. Bob, let me start with you. I mean, I watched the eco numbers. I listened to the Fed speak. I sort of felt like I was going both ways at the same time. What did you see? Well, for a bond investor, all of us who have been battered this year, this is one of the weeks that made sense to us. Mm. We had a nice tailwind coming in from the inflation data. It was great all the way through core. When you look at shelter, everything. Yes, the markets went a little crazy. They went wild. And the central bankers did what they're supposed to do. They came in one by one and reminded us, don't declare victory yet. These are only a couple prints. There are more hikes to come, but maybe there is some optimism and the market settled down. So I look at this week and I thought this is the first great week in a long time. So Sonny, is that the way you saw it as well? And there's still some more rate hikes to come. How many? I think at least uh, another three to start with, 50 basis points uh, next time in December, followed by at least two or three 25 basis points uh, next year. And then we'll see from there. Uh, and I think what uh, Bob said is very true at the same time as we were listening to at least three Fed people come and speak. I wrote down, I think they all had very different quotes, uh, and you had some of that when Leil Bernard talked, uh, but you also had uh, uh, the president of St. Louis Fed say something slightly different as if, you know, we would start, we would continue uh, with rate increases for a while longer than she had implied. And then, of course, we had Susan Collins come in today uh, with um, even, you know, sort of potential 75 basis points. So we're hearing numbers that are a little bit all over the place and trying to make sense of it. So, so Bob, are the markets making it harder for the Fed as a practical matter? Um, they were at the start of the week. I think not so much now. I think we're all in the same spot. We've all got realistic expectations. The Fed's headed to four and a half, five percent. They'll get there sometime in the first quarter. We'll see where inflation is if it's below the Fed funds rate. Then that gives them some scope to pause on the tightening. We can reevaluate at that point. But right now, bond yields have gone up a long way in a very short period of time. It's time for a Bob, does that get us to a soft landing? 
unfortunately, it does not. <laughs> and I think that's the one consistent message from the Fed. Susan Collins aside, which is there is going to be pain for businesses and households. When you have this magnitude of rate hikes in such a short period, and you're also withdrawing liquidity through quantitative tightening, it's going to bite. And we're already seeing it's biting the economy hard. Thankfully, it's also now starting to bite inflation. Bob Michael of J.P. Morgan and Afsadi Beshlis of Rock Creek will be staying with us as we look at what this week meant for our investment decisions. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. We think it will create some of the most valuable companies the market's ever seen. I think it's certainly driven companies like Cisco, given them the life that they've had. It's obviously also spectacularly volatile. The market has pulled back in this sector since it came public, since it began in 1995. It's pulled back 30 to 50 percent at least seven or eight times. That was Henry Blodgett talking about the Internet and tech on Wall Street way back in June of 2000 when the number one movie in the country was Mission Impossible 2 and the most popular song in the country was Maria Maria by Santana. Bob Michael of J.P. Morgan and Afsani Beshlis of Rock Creek are still with us. So, Afsani, certainly Mr. Blodgett was right that we gave us some awfully big and successful companies, no question about it. Some people thought that would happen as well in the crypto space. This week we're not quite as sure after FTX. What do we make of that? Is that does that have a broader significance? of the markets, or is it just a one-off? 
Um, hopefully, it is more limited. I think there's no question that without regulation, and we've all been talking about having this sector regulated, it would help um, it's the market itself, but also the investors going in. Having this particular, you know, FTX, uh, which is an ex uh, exchange uh, for crypto, uh, be based in the Bahamas with not just uh, no uh, regulation, but also with a uh, few people who had very limited experience in finance or in anything really uh, run it. I think the shocking part of it, David, was that very, very sophisticated venture firms from Sequoia and others who were invested, uh, it was not just retail getting involved in that market. So it was a surprise, uh, but hopefully it will get limited, and I think it has put a lot of pressure on increasing regulations sooner here, and that will be a good thing for the market. Now, let's not forget that the whole market is less than, you know, a 900 billion. I'm not saying that that's tiny, but it's still not significant enough to create any kind of stress in the market, unless we're missing something that we don't know at this point. I think what's important, David, when you watch that clip, and that was the absolute peak yeah. in, in the dot-com bubble, yes, there was a massive shakeout, there was a massive consolidation, but I would argue the internet and tech evolved far beyond what any of us ever thought it would be in 2000. I wonder if we're going through the same thing with crypto and NFTs, that it, it got a great start, there is going to be a shakeout. Afsani is right, there's probably going to be a lot of regulation, but when I talk mm -hmm. to the young people mm -hmm. on our desk and our platform, they're still a big believer. And if the millennials are a believer, 22 years from now, they're gonna be looking at this clip, <laughs> and I hope we got it right. <laughs> That's fascinating. There is a, no question there's a generational issue here. Let's come back to the current generation and people uh, who's old as I am. I'm older than you are, but as old as I am, what about bonds right now? Do you invest in bonds? Uh, for the first time in a decade, absolutely. And and I, I will tell you that we're seeing interest from everywhere now. Every wealth management platform in JP Morgan, every institutional client, they're coming to us, they're putting money in bonds, they're looking to commit more, and they haven't done so for, for years. If I look at where we got to at the start of the year, a general bond fund, the the um, the Bloomberg Ag yielded 1.7%. Now we're up at 4.7%. We have 3% higher yields, and that's going to track investment. And as I said, I think the Fed is close to the end. I don't know if they get to 5%. We're kind of in the four and a half, four and three quarters percent. That's going to bring a lot of stability to the market at these levels. Bonds are back. So Afsani, you manage a fair amount of money. What about for you? Are bonds attractive at this point, or are you just equities? I think, as uh, said, uh, what is very interesting right now is even in any foundation or endowment or the assets that we manage, uh, you're finding the, exactly the same phenomena where people had moved away from bonds and cash and where all equities and, and uh, private investments moving back into holding uh, bonds. And as we're sort of reaching that uh, four or five percent that Bob talked about, uh, much uh, more interest in bonds in a more balanced kind of portfolio. And of course, people are looking at cash 
uh, with 4% uh, at, uh, with uh, Treasury bills at the level that is much higher than cash has earned in a very long time. But I think the bigger thing that is happening in the portfolios we're looking at is obviously a lot of uh, investors, institutional investors who've been also investing in venture, private equity, real estate in private form. And I think that is going to some sort of transformation too. Well, let's, let's take a segue, if we could, from that sort of investment into COP27. Uh, as we're speaking right now, it's still going on. It's going to end on Saturday. Right now, Afsani, you know far better than I do. It looks like it's going to be difficult for them to get to the objectives that they had. You're absolutely right. So far, as we know, um, tonight, uh, the latest news was not too positive. Now things could change tomorrow morning, but they didn't really have anything major to announce. Again, as you remember, in uh, the uh, COP26, they had the GFANS, which was uh, uh, a large number of large asset managers signing up to make uh, pretty significant shifts in their carbon uh, print. But... um, most recently, they started walking back from that or not wanting to sign quite on what they had agreed to in, to, uh, in COP26. So I think it's very, very important as we're having these meetings, maybe they shouldn't be every year, uh, maybe they should be every other year or less often, but show some sort of progress. And the most important part of the discussion this time, David, has been the fact that developing countries, again, have felt that they are in some cases um, uh, suffering because if they're an island economy, they're going underwater. If they uh, are affected by uh, by droughts and by floods, uh, a lot of it might be caused by uh, those who uh, did use a lot of carbon over the last 10, 20 years, and they're asking if they could get help. And that help is really not coming. And I think that uh, is the really uh, major uh, summary of COP27, which is that the expectations of investments um, into climate are probably less than what we expected going into the COP. Well, and just picking up on that, on the investments in it, Bob, I want to come back to you, because one of the things at least I'm taking away from COP27, you can certainly hear, listen to John Kerry, the president's special envoy on this subject, we're not going to get there from public money alone. It's going to take a fair amount of private investment. As a bond person, are there bonds that are green bonds or in the climate area that make sense as a business matter? Um, There are. I I think for sure, if you're going to finance something, which is what bond investors do, you want something that has something of a green agenda to it. And we're hearing that from our clients. There's more and more money coming into the space. I think, Afsania, help is on the way for the (laughs) island economies. Uh, The large-scale investors want to commit capital to this space. Thank you so much. Really great to have both of you with us. This is Afsania Beschlis of Rock Creek and Bob Michael of J. P. Morgan. Coming up, we saw it happen in the gilt markets. Could a crisis come to the markets for U.S. Treasuries? And would it come from a lack of liquidity? We're going to ask former vice chair of the Fed, Richard Clarida of PIMCO. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. This is Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. We spent a good deal of this week trying to figure out where the Fed is heading on rate increases. And part of what we were watching was the Fed's vice chair, Leo Brainerd, who gave us at least some hope that we might be getting closer to slowing down. I think it will probably um, be appropriate um, 
uh, soon um, to move to a slower pace of increases. But I think what's really important to emphasize, we've done a lot, but we have additional work to do both on raising rates and sustaining restraint to bring inflation down. We welcome now Ms. Brainerd's predecessor as vice chair, Richard Clarida, now global economic advisor to PIMCO. So, Richard, thank you so much for being back with us. Good to have you back with us. So do you agree with your successor there? Do you think we're at least approaching a point where we might slow down the pace of increases? David, I do. You know, the Fed has done a lot uh, this year. In fact, it'll be the fastest pace of rate hikes uh, since the early 1980s. Uh, I do anticipate that at the December meeting, they'll 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 slow the pace from 75 uh, to 50 uh, basis points. Uh, and I think as we move into 2023, I think they think, and I agree that that they're close at least to a pause, probably in the first half of of next year. As they said in the November statement, uh, they've done a lot, and they want to see how the rate hikes are impacting the economy. So, so Richard, I mean, you have the advantage of having been in the room and having been in the room relatively recently. Give us a sense of what they're looking at their dashboard, because I must say the economic numbers sometimes point in different directions. On the one hand, we do have some indications, like the CPI numbers, that it may be slowing down a little bit, the inflation. On the other hand, the overall inflation is still pretty high. It is. And, you know, the challenge the Fed uh, faces and other central banks in the world uh, is uh, that uh, the economy is running hot. And in particular, uh, wages uh, uh, in the economy are growing uh, much faster than consistent with the 2 percent uh, longer run uh, goal. And so I think that the Fed will be looking at the labor market data. It'll also be looking at inflation expectations. Uh, we have downshifted demand growth. You know, there's an imbalance between demand and supply. And this year, demand growth has already downshifted. So that's an important thing uh, to note. We're certainly along the way to where we need to be. But the Fed has more to do, and we need to get inflation back down towards the 2 percent objective. So everyone seems to agree there's more for the Fed to be done. We just heard Leo Brandard say exactly that. And the question is, how much more? And, and part of the question is, what's the terminal rate? I mean, how far up do we go? We had some somewhat conflicting indications this week, actually. And the banks basically project these things are coming up with very different sorts of answers. Uh, what determines that terminal rate? And let me ask you, perhaps more pointedly, some people think the Fed was a little slow getting off the mark and getting going. Does the slowness of getting started mean the terminal rate would have to be higher necessarily? David, I don't think so. I think what 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 uh, launching the rate hikes in March did mean, and I think Chair Powell recognized this uh, pretty early on, uh, was that it made sense to get to the destination uh, pretty quickly, and that's why we've had the four successive 75 basis point uh, hikes. Uh, my sense right now is the committee believes, uh, and I share the view, that my baseline view is that I want to get the funds rate around 5%. Uh, if the inflation data comes in uh, on the soft side, maybe four and three quarters. If it comes in on the hot side, maybe five and a quarter. Or perhaps, as President Bullard indicated, maybe north of that. But I think around 5% in the spring will be at a level where they've done a lot. They realize that inflation uh, responds to policy with a lag. Uh, 
um, and I think that that'll be a good place to, to take stock. So I think that I wouldn't call that necessarily the terminal rate. I hope it is. If the inflation data doesn't improve, then they may have to do more. But I think they will pause at around 5%. So, Richard, I think you just put the finger on the thing that at least perplexes me, which is a two-place function. I mean, you've got what the rates are. You also have what inflation is. And how restrictive that is depends on how far and how fast inflation comes down. So going into the spring, if you're at 5%, how far down do you get need to get inflation before you say, okay, that's restrictive enough? It's an excellent point because um, uh, typically monetary policy does operate with a lag, so the Fed wants to look ahead. And indeed, uh, for example, Governor Waller and, and others have made reference to comparing the policy rate to where professional forecasters think inflation will be towards the end of, of the year. And I appreciate that point. My own research actually indicates that's a simple thing to do. I think the challenge they face, David, is that, quite frankly, the Fed's record at forecasting inflation uh, has not been very good, including when I was there uh, last year. And so I think it's going to be a balance between adjusting policy according to both the forecast and the incoming data. Rich, thank you so much for being on Wall Street. We hope you'll come back often. It's really good to have you. Yeah. It's Richard Clarida of PIMCO. Coming up, we're going to wrap up the week with our special contributor, Larry Summers of Harvard. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024, and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high-yield-account. Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE.
This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. This is Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. Welcome back now, our special contributor, Larry Summers of Harvard, to wrap up the week for us. Larry, thank you so much for being back with us. A lot of us spent a lot of the week, actually, trying to figure out where the Fed is headed, particularly where the terminal rate is. And we got conflicting, I think at least, somewhat conflicting answers out of the Fed, including with Mr. Bullard, the Fed president, saying, well, five, five and a quarter, and then put up a chart using the Taylor rule that suggested seven. Where are we? Look, no one knows. Uh, I think it's a mistake to be slavish about uh, Taylor rules. Uh, the market thinks the number's going to be about five. I look at things, and my sense is there's more room for that to be too low than there is for that to be too high. But it's pretty clear that we've had the big moves on uh, this cycle, and now we're going to be finishing that process uh, off. My view is that there's more risk from stopping prematurely and not really uh, curing inflation and setting the stage up for a reacceleration of inflation after it comes down. I see that as a bigger risk than going too far, because going too far would mean bringing inflation down below 2%, and that still seems to me like an awfully remote risk uh, starting from where we are. But I think that the Fed has this in the right place when it says that they're going to move up uh, somewhat more and they're going to take stock of the situation and see what the inflation data is saying and seeing what the inflation forecasts are saying when we get to next uh, get to the spring of next fall, spring, winter rather, spring of uh, next year. I have to say that if they hadn't made as many mistakes as they did of excessive optimism about inflation, they'd probably have a little more room than they do uh, to rely on forecasts that hadn't yet proved out that inflation was going to come down. Larry, you and I talk a lot about monetary policy, even fiscal stimulus and things, but geopolitics have also fa factored increasingly in some of the issues having to do with the economy. This week we had what is potentially, we don't know if it is, an important development in the, the meeting of President Xi of China and President Biden. What do you make of those discussions and even ongoing discussions, because now we have the USTR, uh, Madam Tai, actually meeting with her counterpart. Uh, what do you make of the situation with China right now in the United States? Look, as uh, Churchill famously said, jaw-jaw uh, is a lot better than bang-bang. And so the fact that they had a meaningful conversation that lasted more than three hours, the fact that they both came out of the conversation with a sense that there had been satisfying dialogue, the sense that there are some follow-on uh, steps, I think that's all to the uh, good. What it's really going to mean, what really is going to happen, is there going to be constructive movement out of those dialogues? I think that's something we're going to have to wait and see. But I'm encouraged uh, by, uh, by, I, by what I saw, and I think it means that President Biden's whole trip 
has to be regarded as a success. The United States back in the game with respect to climate in uh, Sharm el-Sheikh, the meeting with uh, Xi. I don't think this G20 will be long remembered, but at a very vexing moment, there could have been some kind of breakdown, and there certainly was not that. It's such an important point, and it takes me back at least to China, because it seems to me that sometimes we've been overly optimistic. I mean, for example, going back to the time we admitted to the WTO, we thought China was going to become more like us, and then we go over to the other extreme of being perhaps overly pessimistic about China. I guess my question for you is former Treasury Secretary, among other things, how do we play both sides of that? We don't know how it will end up. How do we keep open the realistic possibility we can really work closely with China, but also protect ourselves against the possibility of confrontation? We in the United States probably need to be careful about our evangelizing influence. I don't think it's really for us to tell China how they should organize their entire society. I think it's for us to stand up for some of our fundamental interests in security and fair economic competition, but uh, to leave it um, at uh, that point. I think we're going to need to be very careful with respect to our diplomacy on the issue of Taiwan. I think we need to be very careful about, about giving China the sense that we are trying to change the traditional uh, one China uh, policy, because I think that could risk uh, disastrous uh, conflict. So I think the operative words for us need to be respect for them, respect for the positions and the fundamental interests that they have, and at the same time, absolute insistence on our own. And I would say one other thing, uh, David. I think ultimately we will prevail in this broad contest with uh, China. But I think if and when we prevail, it is going to be more than anything else on the strength of our example. And that's why domestic renewal at home, whether the issue is scientific innovation or infrastructure, whether the issue is doing something about opiate, opiate deaths or whether the issue is strengthening our education uh, system, whether the issue is building on the greatness of uh, our universities or the greatness of our national parks. I think ultimately it's going to be our ability to remain the country that's the envy of the world the country to which people want to come that is going to determine our success. And if we change our focus from building ourselves up to tearing China down, I think we will be making a very risky and very unfortunate choice. Larry, thank you so very much. That's Larry Summers, our very special contributor. Finally, one more thought. If Tom Brady's for it, it's got to be good, right? I'm getting into crypto. With FTX, you in? Despite that endorsement from the greatest quarterback of all time, the collapse of Sam Bankman-Fried's FTX has brought heartbreak to a lot of people, wiping out in one fell swoop what was estimated to be a $32 billion empire. 
leaving what its lawyers now say could be as many as a million creditors holding the bag. And by the way, triggering a class action lawsuit against Tom Brady and others paid to tout FTX to the world. The ripple effects of the collapse of FTX and the rest of Sam Bankman Freeze empire now beginning here as we wait for bankruptcy proceedings. All of which has shaken the confidence of many investors. That's according to Citadel's Ken Griffin. FTX is, is one of these absolute travesties in the history of financial markets. People are going to lose billions of dollars. And that undermines trust in all financial markets. But as bad as the FTX collapse may be, it's only the latest in a series of major meltdowns we've seen in recent years. Just think back to 2001, when that mythical energy giant Enron hit the skids. Its former CEO, Jeff Skilling, reflected back on the loss in his later testimony before Congress. I am devastated by and apologetic about what Enron has come to represent. No words can make things right. Too many people have been hurt too much. Or WorldCom, the telecommunications phenom of the late 90s that followed Enron into bankruptcy in 2002, wiping out a market cap of $186 billion and sending its former CEO Bernie Ebers to prison, despite his trying to seek protection behind the Fifth Amendment. I've been instructed by my counsel not to testify based on my Fifth Amendment constitutional rights. Or that emblem of the first internet bubble, Pets.com, with that cute sock puppet mascot, which was an instant market hit when it went public, and just as quickly went flop. What goes up must come down. All of these notorious failures shared a bold vision, a confident leader, and a belief that they'd come up with a better mousetrap, just like Mr. Bankman Freed. And if FTX follows the pattern, it will share one other thing with colossal failures through the years. A lot of lawyers making a lot of money despite all the carnage. When Enron went into bankruptcy, it had assets of over $65 billion. In the ultimate resolution, shareholders were wiped out at a loss of $74 billion. But the lawyers? They walked away with over $1 billion along with the accountants. WorldCom was three times as big, losing investors an estimated $175 billion, while the lawyers were making over $10 million a month in a proceeding that lasted well over a year. Lehman was forced into bankruptcy amid one of the most turbulent periods in our economic history, which culminated in a catastrophic crisis of confidence and a run on the bank. But those were all small potatoes compared with Lehman, a bankruptcy that wiped out between $46 billion and $63 billion, according to the New York Fed, and netted the lawyers and other consultants a cool, get this, $6 billion. So we'll see how much the FTX creditors end up writing off, much less the token holders. As much pain as they're feeling, though, you can be sure that there's one group that will come out okay. It's always the lawyers. That does it for this episode of Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This is Bloomberg. See you next week. hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun from May 14th to 16th 
A thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.